Teen moms are one of the most overlooked and neglected populations, falling through the cracks of the system and outreaches that can't attend to their specific needs, such as childcare and transportation issues. Many of our teen moms have to been told that because they got pregnant, their life is over, that they're worth nothing, that this is their mistake, and they need to deal with it alone. At Young Lives Three Rivers, we seek to share the gospel of Christ with teen moms while enabling and equipping them for successful living through bi-monthly programming, Bible studies, life skills training, special events, camp, and most importantly, one-on-one -on -one mentoring with mature Christian women. This morning, I'm honored to introduce to you one of the teen moms that we have the privilege of serving. She's going to tell you what it's like to be a teen mom and how the Ministry of Young Lives have blessed both her and her daughter, Peyton. This is Brianna. On October 21st, 2013, I found I was pregnant. Finding this out made me initially very sad because suddenly I had become a disappointment to everyone. Other than my boyfriend, Cody, I did not tell anyone. I knew that if I did, I would be encouraged to have an abortion, and I knew in my heart that I could never do this. On February 2nd, I finally told my mom, and by that point, I was already five months pregnant and beginning to show. My mom was so upset with me and was crying so hard that it seemed like someone had just died and not that someone was about to be born. My mom and I were able to talk finally, and she said that she would support my decision, but was still trying to convince me that my best option was abortion. Cody told me that he would support me in whatever decision I took. This, the decision was mine to make. On June 20th, 2014, my sweet baby girl, Peyton, entered the world. Everyone was very happy that she was finally here and perfectly healthy. I started coming to Young Lives when Peyton was only two weeks old when another teen mom, Monica, told me about it. I didn't know what to expect and was ple pleasantly surprised. Everyone was so welcoming and supporting, supportive. Coming to Young Lives was the most accepted that I had felt up until that point. Peyton has continued to thrive, but now I have to face the struggle of being a teenager and a new mom. I got off to a rough start in school in September with being up nights with a baby and the demands of accelerated classes. I have lost touch with a lot of my friends, and mainly my only friend is Keisha, who is another teen mom in Young Lives. In June, all of the Young Lives girls were talking about going to camp, and I wasn't sure if I wanted to go. Judy talked me into it, and I was glad that I went. I got to know the Young Lives girls better and felt comfortable. They made me feel like I was part of the team, which I needed. At camp, I questioned whether there was a God because I couldn't believe that anyone as great as God would have ever allowed me to see the things that I had seen as a child. Being at camp slowly and surely changed my heart, and as a result, my faith has become a lot stronger. My life is really crazy and chaotic, and coming to Young Lives is a way for me to get away from the chaos. I feel so loved. I love being with the other teen moms as we share the same struggles. I love that Peyton can also play with other babies. On June 20th, Peyton will be one year old, and it has definitely been a year of happiness and unbelievable struggles and tears. I know that I can always count on the mentors when I need someone shorter or just to talk about what is happening in my life. When I am ready to give up, I spend some time with them, and they push me through the trials and keep me going. As I get older, I would like to continue to be a part of Young Lives and be able to offer the support and inspiration as well as show them the unconditional love that I have been shown. I want to encourage them to never give up and that Young Lives and God always has their back. Lord, again, we have to thank you that you are willing 
to lay down your life for us. In that ugly, horrible death on the cross. Thank you that that vile act has become for us such good, good news. Thank you for taking on yourself all the filth, the wreckage of our lives. And thank you, Lord Jesus, that you love us as much right now as the day when you died. When that blood flowed from your body and you gave up your life and offered to the world from that moment on the possibility of a complete and overwhelming forgiveness. Thank you. Now in the goodness of your desires for our lives, Lord, please take my lips and speak through them. Take our minds and think through them. Take our wills and bend them to your own. Take our hearts, Lord Jesus, please, and set them on fire with love for yourself. Only you can do that. We can't self-ignite. We need you to light up our lives. Do so, Lord. Answer our prayer. We pray in your name. Amen. Well, the amazing news is this. I was just recounting to myself this morning. We sang Amazing Grace as one of our opening songs. The author of that song, John Newton, was a slave trader. He thought nothing of throwing overboard the dead bodies of those who didn't make it as they were sailing from Africa back to either Europe or to the USA. He was calloused. He was a vile, vile man, decadent, a carouser, a womanizer, an alcoholic, his life was a complete mess. You would have looked at him in the middle of all that filth and horror and said, he's hopeless. But God got a hold of his life. And he became a great proponent of freeing the slaves. He was part of that movement in England to abolish the slave trade. When he speaks in that song about being a miserable wretch, which is what we sing of ourselves, he was the wretch he was singing about. But God's grace, God's undeserved, unmerited, unsought, generous, miraculous act 
of sending Jesus to die on the cross so that we could begin again and be forgiven, made clean, made new, described as a new creation, who give our lives then to a whole new pursuit. That's John Newton. And it might be you. And as we prayed in our prayers that God would turn the hearts and minds of people who at this present time are pro-abortion, pro-death, under the guise of pro-choice. Their hearts can be changed. And I run into people, ran into them yesterday morning. I was at a breakfast over the other side of town, Fox Chapel side of town, couple of hundred people, among them uh, Congressman Tim Murphy and Keith Rothfuss, who didn't just pay a visit and pop out, pop in and pop out, sat and listened to my address at that breakfast. But I'm running into people all the time whose hearts get changed. They get changed at the cross. It's not a political change. That nearly is miraculous, a political change. It's a change of heart. God's into that. And then they change their minds about this movement. And there are one or two of you here this morning, no doubt, for whom it is a challenge even to be here. Thank you for being here. Because we make no bones about it here at Christ Church, we are visibly, vocally pro-life. And one of the things, and that's not in vain. One day, the courts will reverse Roe versus Wade. Do you know that Jane Doe of Roe versus Wade fame, who was the proponent asking for the right to choose abortion, has become a follower of Jesus and is pro-life? Did you know that? It may have missed your attention along the way, very similar situation, Madeline Murray O'Hare, who got Bible reading and talk of God out of the schools. She disappeared. I think probably committed suicide. But her son, who was with her in all that, had a tremendous change of heart and is out speaking about Jesus and the power of God's Word. People do change. And it's because God has that power vested in Jesus dying on the cross so that we can come to that scene of horror and shame and disgrace and like the Apostle Paul said, he's not ashamed of the cross because it is the power of God 
That blood of Jesus shed on that cross has never lost its power. It's powerful here this morning in the United States of America. As you go walking on the streets of Washington, D.C., ending up at the Supreme Court, most of the people there will be young. There's a huge student movement that is pro-life. Be there. It's interesting, we've put up a yellow bus out there like a school bus. You will not be traveling on a school bus. You'll have a luxury motor coach, as we would say in England. Great time together. It's all about change and our vision that one day life will be honored again. Look, please turn in your service sheet to page 6. Or if you have your Bibles with you, to Psalm 33. We're picking up the text at verse 12. Interestingly, it begins with, as we've started at this verse, with these words. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. Now the psalm writer at that time was really thinking of Israel. But we've transposed all that into now the work of God around the world. And wherever there is a movement in any nation that comes to the cross, is refocused instead of on the filth and gutless wickedness of this world, focused on the living God, that the nation is blessed. All the boats go up in that harbor. One of the reasons why when we have the opportunity, we celebrate in the patriotic days that we celebrate in this country, here in church, is because God has done phenomenal things in the USA. There was a day when nobody would have questioned that we in the USA honored the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the God and Father of our Savior. It was the norm. Not that everybody believed, but it was the culture. And over the last 50 years, that has been under attack, both in the courts, in the media, in our centers of education. And now people like us, are marginalized. Well, don't let that happen. The nation is absolutely dependent on the lovers of Jesus for our blessing. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. We'll look at verses 13 through 15. What you have here is God looking at the world, all of us, worldwide, not just his church, not just religious folks. Listen to these words. Look at them with me. Verse 13, Psalm 33. From heaven the Lord looks down and sees all mankind, the whole of humanity, 
from his dwelling place, you've got that image of God enthroned on high in glory, he watches all who live on the earth. He who forms the hearts of all, who considers everything they do. That's who. Nothing is hidden from him. He knows the hearts and the actions of all humanity. This is no little Mickey Mouse totem pole God. This is the God Almighty, creator and author of all that is. No one escapes his observation. And you have the sense that he looks in these words here at us weighing us in the scales of integrity and morality and righteousness. That's a look. Later on we're going to consider his looking at us and loving us. But right now, know that God knows who you are. There's nothing you have done that is hidden. There's a great prayer, an old prayer of the church. Almighty God, unto whom all hearts are open, all desires known, and from whom no secrets are hid. That's our God. So he reads you like an open book. C.S. Lewis of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe fame said this concerning God's knowing us, looking at us. He's commenting on 2 Corinthians chapter 5.10, which says these words, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive what is due him for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. And this is what Lewis says. How God thinks of us is infinitely more important than how we think of God. Indeed, how we think of him is only of importance as far as it is related to how he thinks of us. In the end, that face, God's face, which is the delight or the terror of the universe, must be turned upon each one of us, either with one expression or the other, either conferring glory inexpressible or inflicting shame that can never be cured or disguised. It is written that we shall stand before him, shall appear, shall be inspected. The promise of glory is the promise only possible by the death of Christ on the cross. That promise that some of us shall find approval with God. To please God, 
to be a real ingredient in the divine happiness, to be loved by God, not merely pitied, but delighted in, as an artist delights in his work, or a father or mother in her son, their son, it seems impossible. But a weight or burden of glory, which our thoughts can hardly sustain, but by the grace of God, is so. So, you've even got Lewis here, majoring not in the negative impact, though it's stated clearly, no place to hide, no disguise for the shame, kind of desperate aloneness, confronted by God with all our sin. That's on the one hand. Or, standing before the Lord with Christ as our advocate, who has taken all that we deserve by way of God's judgment, and God looks at us and sees us and delights in us and confers upon us a weight of glory which the Bible says is inexpressible. Which do you want? I know. You do not want God to look at you in justice and judgment, but in mercy and love. That's why the cross, the bloodshed there has never lost its power. That's where you need to be. And while this is an Old Testament psalm predating the cross of Jesus, it does express the amazing care that God has when we do put ourselves before him and entrust ourselves to him. Look at these words with me, will you? Go down to verses 18 and following. But the eyes of the Lord, here's a different kind of look. The eyes of the Lord are on those who fear him. Now that's not fear like terror. That's awestruck. When you say anything is awesome, this look of God is awesome. When we look at him and we are awestruck, One chap by the name of Spurgeon years ago said, Fear God, and you need fear no one else. Be in awe of God, and nobody else will ever, ever intimidate you. So here we are. The eyes of the Lord are on those who fear him, on those whose hope is in his unfailing love to deliver them from death and to keep them alive in famine. We wait in hope for the Lord. And that waiting is not standing in line shuffling our feet. It's a quiet confidence, a resting in, waiting upon God to provide what he has promised. We wait in hope for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. In him, our hearts rejoice. 
for we trust in his holy name. And this closing prayer, therefore, may your unfailing love rest upon us, O Lord, even as we put our hope in you. The good news of Jesus is that God is not looking to slam us. His eye is on the whole of the world. He is not fooled or deceived. He's not a jolly, holy version of Santa Claus. He is God Almighty. Nothing is hidden from Him. But in knowing us and knowing our need, He pursues us. It may be that you're here this morning and God is pursuing you to draw you to the cross so that you might be absolutely, totally, completely made new and clean and go live your life for Him. With all these promises, He becomes your hope. You see Him looking at you with an unfailing love. You know as a child, the difference between your parent looking at you and you've done something wrong and the finger's out and the severity is in the eyes. You know the difference between that look and when they just look at you and admire you. The difference between those two looks from God is Jesus. You can come to him and begin again and have a hope for your life here even that things will be different. One thing I said yesterday morning at that breakfast is this, that when I ask Christ to come into my life, with that I had a sense of destiny that my life was going to be of consequence and significance. When you have the Lord in your life, how can it be anything else? If you're looking for what to do with your life and how to be someone of substance, and quality, and consequence. It's all vested in Jesus. He is the hope for that here, and the hope of glory in heaven. And that's a powerful statement. And it's not mine, and it's not because it happened to me. It is God's promise. If John Newton could change, so can you. If Jane Doe can change, so can you. If the son of Madeleine Murray O'Hare can change, so can you. If John Guest can change, so can you. Because you don't do it. You simply surrender to Christ and he does it. So when these young moms come and keep their baby and trust that that child will grow to be someone special, not just another statistic of misery. Nobody keeps a child for that purpose. But they have dreams for their child, 
longings and hopes for that child. That's why this Young Lives Ministry and these other ministries that support the whole notion of keeping your child and then helping people raise their child is so powerful. Because God becomes the advocate. God becomes the protector. God becomes the supplier. God, hear it, will you? I'd love to get you to say it out loud with me. God is pro-life. If he's pro-life, what are you going to be? Absolutely. And with him on your side, God has great, great plans. Some of you know, and I feel free to mention this because he's preached it, from this pulpit to tell you that Jamie Kendrew, our other preaching pastor, as well as Pastor Ed Glover, but Jamie Kendrew is the product of his mother being raped. And here's that lovely young man with his wife and children here, now in the other service, preaching Jesus as the great protector not just to protect against, but to, but to protect for the ends and dreams and goals he has in mind. He isn't just pro-life, he is pro-you, having a significant life and of consequence. So we protest against the meaningless wickedness of slaughtering babies in the womb. We are willing to stand against the tide of popular opinion because God is pro-life. We are pro-life. He's right here, that same living, loving Lord Jesus. So when we go to Washington, it isn't about politics though it looks like it. It's about life and what God designs and God desires and God has sent his son to deal with by going to the cross for all the sin of it. Why don't you bow your heads and talk with me to the Lord right now? He comes right to where you are one of the great gifts about being human and created in the image of God is that you have the power right now to imagine, see in your mind by faith, Jesus coming right to where you are. See him. He comes to you. He looks at you. He loves you as much right now as the day when he died on the cross for you. He loves these little babies whose lives we endeavor to save. He loves you. 
So in your own heart, say to him, this is now just between you and him. No doubt in this audience, listening to this voice, there are one or two or six of you who if you had it to do again, would choose life for the child you aborted. Say to God, Dear Lord, I need you. Desperately, I need your forgiveness. Cleanse me, Lord, from all the filth of abortion, the guilt and shame of those babies slaughtered in the womb, and the very fact that I have acquiesced, never spoken against, never lived for any change, but gone along with the flow. Lord, forgive my guilty silence. Grant to me, Lord, the courage of my conviction in saying that I am with you, Lord. I come and give myself to you. Come into my life, Lord Jesus. Fill me with yourself. Drive out the pain, the memory of the shame, the weight of the guilt. O oh Lord, lift it from me and fill me with yourself, with your spirit, with your love. And for all these who we claim for you, protect the young mothers, provide for them and their children, and grant that we here at Christ Church might give ourselves to helping them. Bless, O oh Lord, Judy Pitlick, who leads this ministry for us, who becomes the mother hen of all these young ladies. Guard her heart, keep her strong, protect her. We pray all this in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.